Welcome to Archonnect Sessions, episode 59. I'm Amelia, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Donna and Ken. Paul is out for this episode, but before we get to the past week's news, we'd like to take a moment to pay our respects to the late Dame Zaha Hadid, who passed away last Wednesday. Hadid, it goes without saying, was a major force and talent, and we are saddened to know we won't see any more creations from her. We are planning a future podcast episode to honor her, so if you like, you can send us your thoughts and farewells to share on that podcast. On this episode, we'll be discussing Alejandro Aravena's Pritzker Prize acceptance speech, the new inflatable space houses NASA is experimenting with, musings on public space by the New York Times' architecture critic, and joined by special guest Nicholas Cordy, we'll delve into his latest piece on the persistent scourge of unpaid internships. Don and Ken, how are you guys doing? Great. Doing good. Great. Yeah. Still recovering from the loss of Zaha, but we, we'll, we'll, all, we'll all carry on. <laughs> yes, it was it was some pretty major news, and it definitely kind of racked our podcasting schedule because it happened right after we had recorded and right before we were able to kind of pick it back up. But rest assured, we will have a place uh, in the podcast later to kind of do her full justice. In fact, actually, one of the news pieces we wanted to talk about today, the acceptance speech and the all, the whole rigmarole pomp and circumstance surrounding the Pritzker Prize that happened, I believe, a couple of days ago at the UN in New York. Alejandro Aravena's acceptance speech is available to stream live if you're interested through the UN's website. We have a link to it on our site. We'll put that in the show notes. But in fact, the chair of the jury, Lord Palumbo, started his um, introduction of the prize before he actually conveyed the prize to Alejandro in memoriam of Zaha, giving his kind words about her memory and kind of starting what is otherwise a joyful and kind of momentous architectural tradition in the Prisker Prize with a little bit of bittersweetness. So I fully encourage, if you haven't seen it already, to watch Alejandro's acceptance speech. It's actually a very interesting and very well-presented speech. Don and Ken, did you get a chance to actually watch the speech or did you go and get Nicholas's kind of redux version on the news? I've been, um, I actually started to watch the press conference because I thought that it's a pretty lengthy press conference. So I, I'm pretty, I'm like 20 minutes in and uh, just listening to him field questions. And I thought his, um, I thought his responses were pretty amazing and pretty mind. Um, I, I don't know how he gets from, you know, uh, A to Z. I mean, you know, connected to the UN, it just, when he sits in front of the UN, he talks about people working together. It's just, it's, it's hard for me to kind of, that he doesn't understand, doesn't see the, the, the problem that the UN suffers from, that their inability to work together in a cohesive fashion to kind of affect change um, or even get countries to buy into change through this uh, large organization. It's, so there's a little bit of a disconnect. He's sitting there talking about these very important ideas uh, about social architecture, but then he's sitting in front of a, you know, the UN talking about it. So it was a little strange. Yeah, that was definitely something that kind of got picked up later after the press conference. There was another event where Aravena announced that he was going to be making four of his housing designs that he has actually built through to construction. Four of those designs would be made available for free and open source use. And I think that that kind of effort or that motion was done very particularly at that time and that announcement. Obviously, this is something that is kind of built into his firm's philosophy of being able to continue addressing the worldwide uh, difficulty with housing shortages that isn't just specific to his country of Chile, but that he's working with in particular in Chile to kind of create these designs that are both adaptable to different areas and that can be accessible through this open source medium, while also allowing um, individuals, whether they're the inhabitants or the builders or, or other architects, to make those kind of bespoke changes to wherever the houses may actually come to be built. But definitely a very <laughs> strange environment. In fact, the the whole pomp and circumstance of the 
Pritzker ceremony does seem a little bit, regardless of whether or not it's at the UN, does seem a little bit at odds with Aravena's architecture. But of course, <laughs> that's not that's not something to critique necessarily. It's just kind of, you know, puts everything in a strange relief. I admit I have not listened to it and I've only read a little bit of the press around it. But I did read that he, there was a, I can't remember the word, but someone said there was a, a very lengthy meandering, that was the word, meandering uh, thanking of various people uh, before he accepted the award. And it, for everyone from his family to clients to just, you know, the obviously the jury. But it just reminded me that we have, you know, we have such a reputation as architects of being this sort of singular artist that to have someone like Ayurveda stand up and say this long meandering thank you to so many people, including the clients and the people who who live in the buildings, you know, who live in the things later. I just hope that that's a little bit more of a step towards where I think the Pritzker and his work are a bit at odds, that architects these days are becoming much less about the singular artiste and much more about how we we are always commissioned to do work for the, you know, very rarely do we design for ourselves. So it's always some kind of a community aspect to every building that gets built. Now, the fact that he would spend a lot of time saying this is a community award, essentially, this is an award to a bunch of people who have all done great work and thinking about the built world that we inhabit, uh, you know, I would hope that that really does become more of the norm in how the public views our profession. I don't know if it will, because also I don't think most of the public bothers watching, you know, learning about the Pritzker Awards. But it is a nice sort of change. You know, it takes all types, I think, to do, to practice. And that also, Donna, made me encourage of, or made me feel a little bit of encouragement of the kind of weird disconnect that there is where you have, you know, literally a, there's a medal, like the Pritzker Prize is like a, a, a medal <laughs> right, that you right. wear around your neck. Like you can't really share that. <laughs> so there <Right>. was something <laughs> kind of um, encouraging, at least that there was, you know, no Oscar handoff music stopping him from thanking all those necessary people. And if you're not going to be able to watch the entire ceremony, I still would recommend kind of flipping through the UN's video of it simply because for whatever reason, the angle they have it set at, this is just like a funny aside, includes whenever it's training on Aravena's left side of his face, you can see Bjarke Ingels off to the frame kind of like mm, reacting to the more like certain <laughs> of more of the like provocative statements made both by Arvena and by uh, Lord Palumbo in the introduction. So if anything, <laughs> even if you aren't in for the whole speech, then that in and of itself is a little a little funniness in involved. You know, I, I want to take it back a little bit to just a couple of comments that are on the website, aside from, um, you know, totally disregarding mine, uh, which was a bit off topic on the thread. You know, I, I think uh, what I'm frustrated by is from the architecture commentariat is what is the homogenous singular architect that these people on our on the website on the Archonnect looking for. I mean, here is a guy who's doing what appears to be right by very many people. Now you could have these side disagreements about, I think if I remember correctly, Cameron had some issues with him, has some issues with Varvena uh, regarding immediate kind of emergency, you know, housing for certain natural disasters. And I think it had to do with um, the Venice Biennale. But I, I guess when I, I try to understand why is this particular architect a flavor of the month? I, we've had our discussion already about the Pritzker, and so I don't want to rehash it. But what is it that, that people are looking for in the commentariat on the, on the website that thinks that this particular individual is an architectural flavor of the month? Is doing social architecture not uh, valuable? Does it not have a place in our culture? Does it not have a place in architecture? I mean, is there is there a singular 
figure? That to me is exactly the question that I feel like I've been arguing on many fronts lately, that it seems like we have so many in our field and not in our field who feel like there must be one way to do architecture, one right way, and that's it. And there's no other, you know, there's no room for other ways of practice. So if someone is getting lauded for doing socially conscious work, suddenly everyone who's not doing socially conscious work feels threatened. And if somebody's doing you know, blob form architecture, everyone who's not doing that has to cut them down because they feel somehow inadequate. I just, I feel like my biggest push lately, and I, I actually did just send another submittal to AIA to give a talk on this, is there are so many ways to practice and there are so many ways that people coming out of architecture school can use those skills that all relate to the built world. And there is no one right way. I mean, I think we need to let go of modernism from this point that that it's not, we don't all have to be gropius. We don't all have to be doing what Corbusier did. We There are so many ways to do what we can do in this profession. And so I just feel like a lot of it is really, yeah, we're like crabs in a bucket, you know, pulling each other down. <laughs> so. Well, yeah. And I think, you know, in the quote that I think that's uh, lifted for the for the article is kind of telling. I mean, his point is taking the, I mean, he's a very charismatic individual. So for right. someone of that nature to be able to, to say to people, take the ego out of it. I'm about building for people and I'm about for, you know, for people. And this is not about form. This is about people. I mean, you know, it's, it's, I'm like, what do you want this guy to do? I mean, he's yeah. pretty much the closest thing that, you know, the, my generation has to, you know, Christ on a cross in terms of bearing, you know, bearing the the sins of architecture and actually carrying through and creating something that he does great work outside of the social aspects of his. I mean, his some of his work that I've seen is beautiful. Even when people don't like his housing, they think it's monotonous. I go, well, you know, I think I think if you look at his other projects, he definitely presents a palette that is very austere and allowing the user to create their own sense of community. And I think that's what's so interesting about these things is that we get a photograph of them after they're completed. What I'd like to see is a photograph 15 years from now, what right. they look like then, right. when people have actually lived in them and people have actually adorned them in the way that makes sense for them and their community. I mean, we're getting these sterile photos, but we know that architecture doesn't end after the photograph. Right. And and living doesn't end after the architect builds the, or has the piece constructed. So I, I am bouncing off the walls trying to figure out what some of these people want from architecture. And they're not even just, they're not lay people. They're us. And they still can't <laughs> even articulate what they want. It's frustrating. They want exactly what they are at any given moment. I think and any any attempts, as we've done multiple times on this podcast, to try to interpret the anonymous online horde as any type of, you know, coherent being or coherent intent. It's it's often <laughs> just, you know, I, I don't want to pigeonhole it into something like just defensiveness, but oftentimes it is kind of what we see. It's just like a problem with accepting newness, but also trying to realize that the kids are all right. And that doesn't mean that the olds are not also all right, I guess, uh, <laughs> <laughs> to put a really pithy spin on it. But just was one final note on Aravena's Pritzker win and, and the whole hullabaloo. At the very least, and especially with the opening up of these open source designs, there is, I feel, some hope just in the fact that love it or hate it, the Pritzker does offer so much notoriety that at least maybe more attention will be brought to these kinds of projects to eventually put them into a real a real moment and a real aspect of the architectural market. And so people and, and design professionals can do these types of projects without having to pass them off as charity or without having to position them as some kind of favor or humanistic outreach. Instead, it should just be absolutely a base level of requirement that people have places that, to live that are nice <laughs> and that we shouldn't get into Great. these holes where we have to anoint a Pritzker to uh, fix a housing crisis. So moving on 
to a completely otherworldly, literally, topic. As while all of this is going on here on Earth, NASA recently announced that it is going to start testing the new beam space house concept, which is effectively an inflatable interior for people on the International Space Station to find a little bit of private time. The term or the official name of the inflatable so-called space house is the Bigelow Expandable Activity Module, aka BEAM, and effectively it attaches on to the International Space Station, then can expand and uh, allow new space for anyone on the space station to inhabit. So they're doing testing at this moment where they're going to ship one out, I believe, on a SpaceX Dragon rocket, and it will be installed in the International Space Station for the astronauts there to run tests and figure out whether this is actually inhabitable. And of course, so the whole promise of expandable habitats, as they're called, as quoted in the Slate article that we referenced in the news piece, is that they weigh less and occupy less space on a rocket as laboratories and living quarters for future deep space missions. So there's huge potentials here. And of course, that now that we have very much real on the horizon, the idea of inhabiting Mars or colonizing Mars. Of course, the issue of residing in space for some time is kind of coming to the architect's front door as, as something that might actually be a phenomenon or a scenario that they might have to be dealing with. So I'm curious, Donna and Ken, did you guys have any type of ideas about this kind of thing actually being a job for architects or what kind of access point architects could have on something like these basically expanding balloon architectures? I do. I actually do have a little insight into this. And it's all because about eight eight or nine years ago, I was fortunate to do a little teaching workshop with the architect Garrett Finney, who at that point was working for NASA and for many, many years worked for NASA doing basically looking at long-term habitation in space and how would an architect affect that. And I, one of the great things I remember that he spoke about to the students was that he was pushing in the NASA, in the space station environment, and I will try not to butcher this idea, but basically in the space station environment, everything has to be accounted for. Every single thing, every drop of perspiration that comes off an astronaut has to be accounted for, Every the weight of every single thing. And one of the things that they had to think about was everything in there is white because of the less amount of, I think, it, what is it? Something about something to do with less heat being concentrated in one space, because if you have different colors, then the, the different colors of things become warmer or colder, and you want to have a very stable environment inside this totally enclosed environment. But he argued, he was arguing that each little tray, there's like a little tray that they use for their food, which I'm not quite sure I understand because there's no gravity, but that each tray would have a different little icon on it. And what he wanted to do was cut out of the tray a little icon in the shape of a fish or a tree or a soccer ball or whatever, so that each space station resident could claim one and say, you know, I want to use the fish tray, not the tree tray. So because when you're living in space for that amount of time and every single bit of your existence is accounted for, there's no room for personalizing of anything, right? Mm. So he was trying to say, if we can't play with color, if we can't play with texture, if we can't play with any of these things that would be how people usually would personalize their spaces, then I need to give them something in the form of a, a little icon or a little insignia, something that lets them say, you know... I can lay claim to this. And it reminds me of the comedian Brian Regan talking about calling furniture. You know, when you get up from the TV and you want to not have your brother sit down, you're like, I call that chair when I get back. Um, so 
Garrett Finney was talking about how you, one of the things that architects need to look at is when you live in outer space for a long time, yeah, there's no variability. And the variability cannot be worked into the equation because it would upset the entire system. So then, of course, that makes me think of Buckminster Fuller talking about space station Earth and how, you know, the more we seek to personalize and consume things on Earth, the more we throw that all out of balance. So, you know, to me, these little, what seem like very little nerdy discussions about living in outer space absolutely reflect back into how we live on the planet entirely. So I don't think that Garrett Finney is with NASA anymore. My understanding is he's moved into mobile housing, like collapsible prefab module stuff. So there's absolutely space for architects to move into this world of space design. Yeah. And I find it a very exciting topic. We should get Fred Sharman on to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly who was running through my mind. And it totally brings into focus this ongoing dialogue around things like the Google campus, the Dirk Engels group, and Thomas Heatherwick designed very much evocative of the buckyball kind of 60s so-called hippiness of having this kind of (laughs) tessellated web with glass and everything. And and how people kind of scoffed at that and thought that was kind of silly. But I think that there really might be some kind of connection in the in just what might be going on in the zeitgeist of kind of bringing back those whole, the, the whole earth catalog kind of values. And Donna, when you were saying, you know, accounting for every detail, I mean, of course, or every, every substance, every element, really, yeah. that isn't entirely what not only the basis of the consumer culture that we have that denies that, but of having like right. the actual sustainable future that we're trying to get to really does have to emulate that. And we're probably not any closer to to that future, which might be why we're going to space in the first place. But I think that's a very keen observation. I really love that example and kind of bringing it back to, you know, these thoughts and and, uh, ideas and movements that were just 50 or so years ago and are kind of finding new resurgence. Part of the workshop that Garrett taught was dividing the students into groups and giving them each an object. And I remember one of the objects was a little collapsible folding travel toothbrush. And they were supposed to analyze and then diagram where all of the raw materials from each of these objects had come from. And it was surprising to them how much, basically how much stuff is plastic in our world and how how much plastic comes from petroleum products. And that, you know, it's like you can trace everything back to these resources that are either very limited or very damaging in their ultimate use. So it was a really good, and this was a workshop for high school students, so they really had never been exposed to any kind of thinking about this before. Yeah, he's a really good architect. I I encourage people to look him up. His name is Garrett Finney, and he's done some, uh, yeah, just great work really thinking about how we use materials, I think. We will definitely link to him and some of his work in the show notes. Thanks, Donna. There's a, it's, it's so interesting about this, listening to Donna talk about Garrett's work and how he described it. And you just realize there, is, there isn't democracy in space. Right. Democracy does not exist. Yeah. And the idea that normal humans could occupy space or everyday average humans go to space is patently absurd. <laughs> I mean, we can't even, we can't get a, a bunch of chuckleheads to exist on an island somewhere out in the Pacific somewhere and actually cohabitate and work together. I mean, you expect these same people. There would be people being shot out of the side of these things in about 20 minutes. <laughs> They're so undisciplined. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, couple with the fact that I hate it already because there's no uh, Matt Damon or uh, Scarlett Johansson <laughs> that kind of saved me from myself. I mean, give, you could always you know, bring disco music. <laughs> I could bring. All of the Martian. Oh, soul, soul. <laughs> yes. So, disco and soul. But but maybe it, you know maybe the model for how this might work later is um, the pod share that we discussed last week, where 
everyone's in this tiny little <laughs> space jammed together. And- well, given the amount of time that it takes to simply travel to, I mean, not that the International Space Station is traveling to Mars, but <laughs> just to get ahead of ourselves, say you would use one of these types of inflatable pods, the beam in traveling from here to Mars. That's a solid number of, I believe it's like a few years, right? To get to Mars? No, mm-hmm. maybe yeah. not. I should check my facts, but it takes long enough that you have to commit to something maybe similar to get your rental in that pod share or something like a short-term yeah. rental of sorts. So there might be some real social parallels between those types of spaces, assuming that all of the in- residents of such a space have also been through the necessary rigorous like militaristic training that <laughs> most astronauts yes. will actually pass before they become part of, you know, the International Space Station. I'm hoping it'll just look exactly like Star Trek. I mean, that is kind of just what I'm assuming is going to be the ideal here. And then everything will work itself out. Perfect, diverse community. I'm hoping for Star Wars. <laughs> so do we have any more thoughts on the uh, on Beam or shall we move on? I'm done with it. <laughs> beam, beam us onward. I have more to say, but it'd be just be funny. Yes. <laughs> so back to public space. Michael Kimmelman wrote an article that is in the April 7th issue of the New York review of books. So I guess technically it's not really out yet, but the article's called The Craving for Public Squares. And it's a, it's a kind of a sweet but hard to pin down essay on public space. He talks about how we, as a, as a planet, we are moving to becoming a more urban planet that, that it, by 2050, 75% of the people on the planet are expected to live in cities or in an urban environments more and more every day. And it included this very nice line that uh, I'm just going to quote two little sentences. Squares have defined urban living since the dawn of democracy from which they are inseparable. The public square has always been synonymous with a society that acknowledges public life and a life in public, which is to say a society distinguishing the individual from the state. He gives a few examples and talks about political events that play out in public squares, uh, Tiananmen Square and Tahrir in Cairo and recently in the United States, Zuccotti Park with the Occupy movement. And just a shout out to Killian Riano and the Who Owns Space project that cataloged in Manhattan what's actually public space versus what's a privately owned public space, which is a space where your rights can actually be limited by uh, whoever owns the space itself versus a public park where there are different rules. The comments on Arconnect over this article were kind of went off the rails. They were they really kind of were, were yelling at Kimmelman that he's supposed to be an architecture critic. Why isn't he talking about buildings? I thought one of the comments was very funny. It said, basically, without architecture, there's no public space, to which my thought was, you know, without without a public coming together to cohabitate in space, there isn't any architecture. But so the two things that, that were my takeaway from the article was, number one, this is in the New York Review of Books. So it's not an architecture magazine. His audience is not architects. And I think that despite the fact that we architects have always thought about the the agora in Greek architecture and, and the meaning behind public spaces and how public space forms our communities, I don't think most people really think about that on a day-to-day level. So contemporary architectural discourse right now to me is much more about the sort of activities that happen in the spaces between things. Zaha in her work and Patrick Schumacher talking about their work and Bjarki also. I mean, all these people talk lately about buildings as being inspired by and enhancing public activities, that it's all a reflection of how as humans we come together to live in space. So even though I don't think there's anything really new in this article, I do think for people who read the New York Review of Books and who are not thinking about architecture all the time, I think this probably will make them take a little more notice of the public space in their worlds that they do occupy. And and I think that's a good thing. So, you know, for not being about an article directed necessarily at us, I feel like it's a nice one that we can talk about with other people. Amelia, what do you think? I, Donna, had a similar reaction to this piece as feeling like it was kind of sweet, but a little bit 
not landing very solidly in any one place. I was a little bit bewildered by why, in fact, this piece was seen as necessary to be written or in any way kind of proving any particular point. It's a very soft piece. It's a very almost anecdotal where he's really just, he refers to a lot of experiences that he's had in different public spaces around the world, often on assignment for, for the New York Times and his role as architecture critic. As an aside, it sounds, it, it, I get the impression that Archonnect's commentators like to deny Michael Kimmerman's presence as the New York Times' architecture critic, when in fact, by saying things like, it's too bad the New York Times doesn't have an architecture critic. I'm, <laughs> I just want to dispel that for all, like, he is, a, he is their architecture critic, and I find it a little bit ridiculous that that's a thing. Anyway, in regards in the piece, the various anecdotes that he shares about being in a refugee camp, being in a converted space, or excuse me, a former um, intersection in New York City that's turned into a public space, and just explaining his, not only just his personal experiences there, but the exchanges that he has in there. I think that even if this piece doesn't have a real strong argumentative tone or point to it, in recounting those stories, he's kind of at least building up a little bit of fodder for providing, I think, a very significant accessory and a bit of a counterpoint to the current narrative that he outlines at the beginning of the piece around a lot of architecture criticism and, and architecture writing and urbanism writing now is focusing much on this return to cities. But the return to cities is cast as, you know, look at how terrible the housing crisis is. Look at all of these creative ways that people are learning to live or work together and all of these other moments and, and kind of movements around people cohabitating again in denser urban areas at a rate that they have not as of yet historically. But what is left out of a lot of those very sensationalized conversations is an attention to public space in the way that, sure, you can cram more people into less space and you can create better environments in smaller space with good design. But what is still the reason why people want to be in that city in the first place? Is it because just because of jobs or is it because they actually have something when they step out onto the street that makes them feel like this is the place they want to be? And that is kind of what I think he's trying to get at here is that there's so much talk of Donna, as you said, the space in between and, and as well, the splitting up of spaces is as infinitely as possible as we can to form workspaces, live spaces, bowling spaces, be craft beer drinking spaces or whatever. But the attention to just vacant space, literally open space and having strategic and not just placemaking as a buzzword, but places where people actually form an identity along with the city that they're inhabiting. I think that devoting a little bit more of the design and architecture dialogue to specific things like that is significant at this time. And so it's a little annoying in that respect that it's in the New York Review of Books and not in the New York Times. And I'm kind of wondering why didn't he write this for the Times other than because he certainly refers to a lot of assignments that he saw in for the Times within this piece. But I think that it does nonetheless kind of put a significant notch in an area that hasn't been fulfilled so much in the current dialogue that we're hearing. Ken, did you have any thoughts on this piece? You know, I, I've read it and, and a lot of times when I read these pieces, it, it comes from, I'm like, okay, why is the criticism what it is? And so I go back and I read the piece and, and I think about the, again, the context I think everybody else is considering as well is what's the point of the piece? Why is it in this place? It's possible that this is a, a small piece to a prelude to a, a larger piece, a, a book perhaps he's writing. You know, it's interesting when I think about the spaces that I've been in, these public spaces or these squares, you know, I don't really consider the architecture. <laughs> I don't consider it in the way that I think a lot of the architects are thinking about. It. I mean, it all, I think it all depends when I think about when I, my time in, my times in Washington Square Park, I think about my times in Madison Square Park, I think about, you know, being in Times Square in this plaza. You know, I'm almost, the, the scale is brought down to a manageable level. I'm getting some respite from the buildings. I'm getting 
some, I'm getting a perspective at the buildings. I'm getting a sense of the people. Everything seems to be, you know, very situated, uh, centrally focused around in the park that I'm not sure what the real criticism of some of the architects have to do with uh, this piece. I just don't understand it. And I actually, I I thought it was a, a very quiet piece. And maybe that's part of what I appreciated about it is that, you know, not everything has to be in your face, pointing out every single detail. I think there's a pleasantness into to what you get some respite or some distance from things and seeing it in a different way. And I think to me, this piece kind of reads that way. I'm getting a different sense of where I'm situated and not solely focused on architecture. Well, one of the things I thought was interesting is he did mention, uh, and I agree with you, Ken, maybe this is a prelude or a piece that's going to be part of a book or a bigger development of stories he's working on. I don't know, because it is a very soft, very nice, pleasant piece. But the other thing that was interesting, he brought up how Mayor Bloomberg, is it, I think, in New York, had pushed this notion of developing public space and funding, providing some funding for developing public space. And what they did was went to communities and said to the people living there, you know, where do you either see a public space that exists that could be enhanced or see the possibility for one? And what are you actually doing in this open spaces on the sidewalks, et cetera, in your area? And how could those things be worked on? So, uh, you know, rather than go to a um, some sort of Robert Moses notion of, we want to put a park here, damn it, we're going to plop a park down here. They actually went into the communities and said, where do you already use space in this way? And I think that's the way to develop what becomes then very usable spaces. The, the other, You know, you can get into some technicalities about, he distinguishes between public places and parks, you know, meaning sort of a hardscape landscape difference. And this is all stuff that people like Lawrence Halperin have studied endlessly. And and um, it's all very important. And it absolutely is related to architecture. Absolutely. I just think any notion that that architecture is just about the object building is that, again, that went away with modernism. We're, we're way beyond that at this point. So I think if there's any criticism of this piece, maybe perhaps some of my questions or but maybe it's just questions. And again, maybe he'll get to it, is that the impression is left with that the, the democratic positioning of creating parks or spaces when we know that as long as you operate inside the parameters that are framed by certain people, that those things will work for you. But the minute you are on the outside or the edge of a cultural framework that doesn't kind of fit your per- doesn't fit the narrative that they're trying to construct. If you're a skateboarder, for instance, we already know what happens to parks with skateboarders. We know, you know, so why aren't they part of the discussion? I mean, why do they have to be pushed to a place that exists outside of the public environment? What's so horrible about their contribution to public space that they can't be included in some way, you know, by putting up or the spikes that get put on benches so that people don't sleep there? I mean, so as long as you fit a, a narrow cast framework that is decided by a very small community, then then that tends to work for you. But the minute you're a an element that exists outside of that edge, you're then seen as a, a as an unsavory element to the park system or to the the space in general. Right. I mean, there are there are serious discussions to be had around all of these topics, and this article was not that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it will be interesting. I mean, I'm I'm honestly not sure exactly how much of the New York Review of Books' audience skews towards architecture or architects. Todd Williams reads it. He told us that's the only thing he reads. There you go. There you go. So maybe <laughs> maybe we should check back in with him and see what he thinks of this article. Exactly. Todd, let's have him back on. <laughs> I would love that. 
we'll, we'll save that for another day. The last piece we wanted to talk about on this episode is a feature penned by our writer, Nicholas Cordy, a piece about the unquenchable subject of unpaid internships. It's one of those unfortunate subjects that we never really have, or we rarely have a so-called newsworthy reason to write something about. However, we have a perpetual reason to write about it because it's still very much a thing. We have, among our office, we have anecdotally people who just, we know, who are in architecture school or just about to graduate or recent graduates who have personal experiences with unpaid internships, as well as the older or the more established professional who it might be considering weighing the costs and benefits of taking an unpaid internship to perhaps bolster their career in a new direction, given the notoriety around such an internship, whoever is hosting it. So joining us to discuss his recent article on the current state and the ongoing state of unpaid internships, we have Nicholas Cordy. Hey. Thanks for joining us. You're so eager. It's good to hear. I am eager. (laughs) Just like those unpaid interns. Yeah, exactly. So eager to prove themselves willing to not get paid for it. So we approach this topic from the standpoint of wanting to address issues of money and finances in March on Archonnect. And it's a topic that we unfortunately have to deal with all the time and comes in. Nicholas, can you give a little bit background for those who haven't read your article, maybe what your approach was this time around? Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. I think that one of the things I've found is that there's actually a ton of information out there about architecture internships. And one of the things I was interested in is how you look at the Archonnect archive, for example, there's articles that go back all the way to 2004, 2005, that essentially are saying the same things that one would put in a feature about the state of internships in 2016. And what interests me about that is how, while that conversation has largely stayed the same, the context in which an architect trains or a young architect enters into an internship program has changed a lot. And I think that has to do with larger economic forces, but also just the cost of living in a city where major architecture practices tend to be. And so I kind of wanted to contextualize internships within that larger economic structure, because I think oftentimes we think about internships just as kind of an intra-architectural debate. Is it ethical? Should we continue to do it? But there's kind of a more pressing question of, is it really practical or feasible? And that's how I wanted to approach it. And also you were able to kind of hone in on one particular subject for this kind of to give some data and some actual fact to uh, the conversation going on of a particular uh, contact of yours who's doing an unpaid internship in New York City. And it, it really is very much a problem, not just of the labor laws, but of introducing young architects into these kind of very highly competitive and hard to survive cities. I wonder really if, and we haven't done the research on this, but I wonder really how this might break down in terms of unpaid internships over firms that are have a less notoriety but are just simply in more affordable cities, whether there's more of a cultural acceptance or less of a discussion, at least, around firms that exist in smaller cities, places where it's easier to find a place to live and easier to survive than kind of, at least in the U.S., maybe the most difficult New York City, where most of the major firms are located. You know, I think this one lights a fire under my ass like nothing else does. <laughs> I've been connected to this profession for some shape or form, not as long as many people on the website, but I've been connected to it in some shape or form since, I'd say, the late 1980s, early 1990s. And, you know, you don't have to go back to, you don't have to stop at 2004. This this, this is an ongoing issue with regard to pay and interns. But I wanted to You know, I think part of me wants to connect it to, Nicholas, your earlier piece from uh, February regarding is architecture shifting from a profession to a lifestyle choice? I'd like to, you know, I'd like to know what architecture student is signing up to fucking eat dog food 
uh, essentially. <laughs> what it comes down to, if you really look at it, what you're talking about in your piece that's just come out and what's inherently ridiculous is this idea that somehow architecture students are kind of leisurely picking this profession because it affords them some kind of a comp, you know, some accommodating lifestyle. And I think that's my takeaway. And from that earlier piece written by a duo Dickinson is that there's something that I just feel is completely disconnected from reality here. And ultimately what it comes down to is it's not the intern. That's the problem. It's not the person graduating from the profession. That's the problem. It's the profession itself. It's the architects themselves doing this damage to our profession. It's not the intern accepting exactly. the salary because we have, we have no, a lot of these kids that are coming out and graduating right now have no freaking choice. And what I would be interested to know, and, and, and this is pro and maybe you have some anecdotal evidence to kind of to say something relevant to this, but I want to know is it seems like, the, at least in the United States, the majority of profession is dominated not by large firms, but much, much smaller firms. And what I'd like to know is that it seems that the, the larger firms that I've worked for don't do unpaid internships. That's an absolute no-no. However, it seems like boutique firms the Peter Eisman type firms and those kinds of firms that are really kind of kind of operating in this kind of academic professional environment who do those kinds of relationships. And I think on a lot of levels, you see the real, the hardcore part of the American Institute of Architects are operated by much smaller firms that are the ones really doing the gouging in terms of uh, salaries. I mean, when they really, really are like really forcing people to make these decisions about whether or not to take the job at a ridiculously low salary or not eat. or And because I think that you're going to have those stories about people working for Peter Eisman or whoever else getting paid really small amounts, but they don't represent a large swath of the profession. They have a very narrow, very niche kind of focus. And I wonder, do you have anything to kind of talk to those kinds of groups of professionals, environments? I think that's definitely true. I mean, there's this kind of reality to architecture that it's those smaller niche firms that kind of, uh, they, they, they wield a disproportionate amount of cultural capital. So you're in a, you're in the academy, you're at a architecture school and you're reading texts by Eisenman and stuff. Of course, afterwards, you're going to feel like there's extra reasons to work for a practice like that, a practice that's kind of on the cutting edge of theoretical work to kind of really quickly shore up your resume. And I see that often from friends I know who, who graduated from these kind of like prestigious Ivy League universities in particular, that those kind of, there seems to be this kind of, they, they feel like they have to enter into these firms that tend to, to pay less. And it also comes down to the kind of architecture you want to be practicing. And I think that so many people get into architecture hoping to be doing that kind of quote unquote cutting edge work rather than maybe the larger firms that are more economically viable and therefore able to actually pay their young workers a, a real wage or living wage. I think you're on to something there. I mean, you know, honestly, if I had left school at 24 and I had an opportunity to work for Peter Eisenman and I knew that I wasn't going to make making a cent, chances are I, I can see myself not taking it. But the one thing that you kind of connected for me was that the ones who are more likely to do that, to put themselves through that, 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 that kind of process are the ones who are graduating from Ivy League school. So there's already embedded in that statement that that person, that particular individual can afford that kind of opportunity. 
And I've heard stories and, you know, and it, again, these are anecdotal, these are secondhand, but I've heard these stories where, where wealthier European kids who want to work for Eisman, or I, I keep picking on Eisman and I, I apologize. <laughs> no, it's justified. It's justified with him. He's proud of it. He, I know. There's a certain precedent. And what I've heard is, well, here's what happens. This is one thing I don't think it's talked about a lot, but if I'm from a wealthy family and I go to an Ivy League school and I'm, you know, Eisman doesn't have room for me, I will, hey, my, my parents will pay you $50,000 a year for me to work here. <laughs> and I've heard that story from pretty reputable, I mean, pretty good sources. I mean, you know, with personal relationships with other architects who've actually had this happen to them, where these students' families will pay to actually have their kid work there. And, you know, I kind of, I think, but to focus again, to focus on those particular firms, I think it's absolutely a waste of time because I just don't think that by and large, I would say, you know, it's like being a, it's like being a college athlete. It's like being a football player in college. 5% of the graduating class or the 5% of the pro or the athletes that come out of college that play football are going to be playing NFL. I would say even a smaller percentage of the architecture students that graduate from any university have even a chance of hell of getting in any of these firms. So where is the disc? The where are these students going? They're going to the the either the larger, more corporate firms, or they're going to the smaller shops that you know half a dozen people, three or four principals, you know, doing this work. And that, to me, it seems like that's the bigger issue. It's the profession, the larger part of the unspoken profession that is the real source of the problem in terms of the sinking of wages. They refuse to, to go back and relitigate or go back at the Justice Department to kind of get to deal with the, um, what was that? The antitrust thing? The antitrust issue. They refuse to kind of do anything about that. And so now there's this, you know, there's this race to the bottom in terms of fees. And that's not set by an intern. That's not by set by a four-year design professional. That's not by set by, you know, even a mid-career professional. That's traditionally set by a principal who is, you know, competing with other people. So there is a race to the bottom. And it has nothing to do with interns. It has nothing to do with graduates. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with people running the firms. So if there's anyone burning this profession down, it's the people running the firms. Totally. And I, mean, I think what you're talking about really points to kind of this, the one of the main points of the article that I wrote, which is that when we pose it as this ethical question solely, we ignore the fact that architecture is a profession, is an industry that's embedded within a larger economy. And there's patterns in that economy that transcend just architecture that are leading to lower and lower, lower wages for the emerging workforce. And that that is kind of like the real that has to be the real focus to put it into this kind of like larger, more holistic conversation about what are the the forces, I think, uh, the economic forces that are kind of, I guess, encouraging or are there economic forces that are encouraging these firms to take advantage and exploit their young workers? Or is it really kind of just like the maintaining of the status quo, doing what they were doing over and over again? Because if it's the latter, then I think that there's a really serious issue. I think, and this is, again, I'm going to have to preface this with some anecdotal evidence only, but to respond to what you're saying, Nicholas, that there really does seem to be some structural inefficiencies and problems built into how a lot of architecture firms practice, or at least I should say maybe these kind of smaller boutique, high cultural capital firms where 
either out of their size being relatively small, but their trajectory being growing. So they're trying to get bigger projects, compete for bigger competitions, that they simply aren't running the business in a way that allows them to complete the work that they're trying to strive to do in a way that is capable from its current staff, not working overtime, not working crazy hours. So instead, there's there's this kind of expectation, well, we have to keep the pace that we need to build the business and we're not going to be able to hire any more people to do that. So we just have to hire unpaid interns. And thank God there's this widespread social acceptance within the discipline to be able to do that in the first place. That's kind of like what I see is, at least from a few people's experiences, the what allows these things to kind of become not just involved in the firm's process, but kind of an expectation that the firm can kind of rely on that workforce, that hidden workforce, that invisible workforce at any given time. And this also makes me think of the work of such like architecture educational institutions like the London School of Architecture and um, Boston Architectural Center of their work doing training that is heavily involved with apprenticeship or what you might call internship to effectively, and I would think ideally, remove the entire period of an architect's progression through the internship phase, right? Like, so they've already graduated from school while also having worked with a firm, worked closely as they might have as an intern, but while they're still in school with one of these high cultural capital firms that can actually really use their help. But instead of having their tuition go towards them sitting in a studio all day or sitting in a classroom and doing something on a computer, they're actually working with the firm. So I'm wondering whether we're in this kind of transitional space where if these schools and these new educational models, not not to say new, but newly re-emerging forms of, of education for architecture can kind of get a better hold on, say, the Ivy League institutional model that maybe we may be able to make the whole unpaid internship thing extinct. That might just be a pie in the sky thing, though. No, I think you're right about that. I think, you know, when you see some of a lot of the criticism about IDP and you start putting it together with these issues and you start thinking about how NCARB is changing how architects are being licensed, it, it doesn't take a lot for me to kind of, you know, it doesn't take me to, uh, I don't have to think that far out into the future where I can see a, a model working where I don't need an architect to get a license anymore that I'm getting it through my education. And I mean, I don't mean that and that you don't need one, but like you were talking about, Amelia, you're getting on the job training in some shape or form and that somehow that you, you that's enough to get a license. Because if there's if there's anything that should be able to kill this system, it's actually more architects, not fewer architects. And the faster they can become architects, the better, because then it will really that idea that exists right now where there's a race to the bottom. Maybe that'll stop because you start putting, you know, you start putting these um, entrepreneurial spirit in these gung ho young design professionals. And if they come out of school being licensed faster, what does that spell for the, the larger schools out there that might start gutting what they do? and start changing the, how they provide uh, education. Going back, Nicholas, to your question about is this just so much a part of the cultural structure of how architecture practice works? I, I think that is changing. I really do. I mean, I think, as Ken, you were saying, the, the, the nature of how we train young architects is changing. And there has been so much, not just in the world of architecture, but also in other worlds of publishing and fashion and all these other worlds, we are hearing more and more stories about how unpaid internships are completely untenable, not to mention illegal. And so I don't think it's only in our world that people are starting to frown more on that practice. But the part that made me the most furious out of your article, Nicholas, and everyone should read it, it really sort of goes through, okay, if I'm this person and I'm making this much money, how am I going to be able to afford to live in a city? And yes, the rising cost of living in cities in general is really affecting this this issue. Back in the early 90s, when I had a friend who worked at Eisenman's office for 
the summer and was paid a t-shirt. You know, you could live in Manhattan for next to nothing back then. You, you can't do that anymore at all. That said, he came from a family that could afford to send him money from Austria every couple weeks so he could, you know, he could afford to buy meals in New York. But the, the part that made me the most angry is this bit about the woman who you, the friend of yours who you profile, who says that she works a 12-hour day, but she's expected to clock out after eight. And to me, if a firm is flat out telling their employees, we want you here to work and we need you to work these long hours, but we're not going to pay you for all of them, that's a failing business. And that's an enterprise that cannot exist either ethically or legally, and it shouldn't exist. And I think we need to call them out. I think we need to name and shame firms. And it's happening again. It's happening a little. I think we're seeing a little bit more in the general discourse around all disciplines, not only architecture, but they deserve to be named and shamed. It's completely untenable to say to someone, I want you to work here and I'm not going to pay you. That is not a way to run a business, and businesses should not be allowed to continue to exist that try to do that. I mean, if you can't tell your client how many hours, or, I mean, you, we don't tell exactly. our clients how many hours, but if you can't figure out how many hours it's going to take to finish this project, and you've already shaved off four, you clearly haven't billed your client enough. You haven't exactly. set a fee high enough to pay that employee the four hours. It's absurd. So it's not, again, it's just, it's so uniquely frustrating to hear stuff like that. It's like, I want to go kick some architect in the ass. <laughs> exactly. I want to name and shame them. I want it out there that these people are not behaving ethically with their employees. So you, Mr. Client, Mrs. Client, why would you expect them to behave ethically with you, with the work they're doing for you? Because yeah, they're clearly not good business people and they're not ethical humans. <laughs> frankly. And I, you know, I'm old enough also, I'm going at this like as a mom, I'm thinking <laughs> about all these 20 year olds that I go and review at grads at school. And then I think about them going into a firm and being told how valueless they are, that they're not even going to get paid. And it makes me furious. It makes me angry because when I was 20, I didn't know any better. And I think we need to be teaching our 20 year olds that, yeah, you can do way better than that. I mean, I definitely agree. I would name and shame if my friend's job wasn't on the line. I, I didn't worry that she'd be identified. But and that is a real thing. I mean, I think that with this firm, like many other firms, one of the issues is that they're doing they're engaging in work that doesn't necessarily have a guarantee of compensation. There's not necessarily a guaranteed client. So competitions, for example. But then also, I mean, it's that it's part of that larger kind of winking attitude of of the discipline that says, you know, we're all kind of in this together. We all want to put in the extra hours because we're ambitious. We love what we do. This is architecture. This is like what our lives are to be and what we're going to dedicate them to it. But that doesn't extend that kind of we're all in it together. Staying late at the office doesn't extend to the point of we're all in it together so you can actually afford a sandwich. So it's this kind of like real question, I think, about what do we want architecture to be in the future? I mean, architecture, there's been obviously enormous strides in kind of slowly dismantling its position as a gentleman's profession. But at the same time, if you look at it, it is still largely a white male field. And I think that I personally don't think that's an architecture that should be in the future. I mean, I mean you look at, for example, I mean, it, the, the situation that I kind of map out in the article is one that is really only affordable if you have family money, if your parents are willing to foot the bill for maybe for one year, but maybe three or four years. And that, that's pretty extreme to ask of any profession, particularly one that expects you to work just so, so hard. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's a video making the rounds today, and I'm sure you'll see it if you have Facebook, you'll see it on Facebook. It's this young woman sitting at a Starbucks and uh, the governor of Florida walks in and she just 
absolutely tears him a new asshole. Yep. Just really just ripping him apart and basically says, you know, what do you know about poor families? What do you know about the working class? You're a, you're, you're a liar. You're a fraud. And that's what it's going to take. That's what it's going to take. If there's anyone out there that's going to the AIA convention next month, you're going to see plenty of famous architects walking around and you're going to see plenty of hear a lot of a lot of bullshit. Go to the the meeting. I think it's typically at the end of the end of the convention and stand up there. You get a mic. You get to speak. <laughs> you get to call out the people in that room. And chances are you probably won't see your boss. But if you do, you know, I would thoroughly encourage anytime you saw Peter Eisman walking into the Ohio State, you know, Starbucks or walking anywhere around Manhattan, just call them out. I mean, I, th I think that's completely right, Ken, because one of the big issues is that this isn't going to change from interns. And, and I think that there's a, a lot of people would like to say, well, then just don't take the job. And if the interns don't want it, then stop working at these firms. But there's always going to be some students who are willing to take these jobs. And unless it starts from the top, the people who actually are giving the money out, the ones signing the paychecks at the end of the month, then little, I think, will change. And in, in that line, uh, I think it's like always good to give a shout out to Architecture Lobby and the work they're doing about actually trying to Absolutely. get in people's faces and, and make this an issue. And that's what's so rich about this idea of being a rich man's profession. It's what's so funny about it is that it's a rich man's profession, but yet we're unable to make the architects do what we say. I mean, so those people, they're lying to everyone. They're lying to me. They're lying to the student who's coming out of state school, that there's nothing that can be done about it. Well, universities hire Frank Gehry to build buildings that they build on campuses. Don't tell me that these uh, these large institutions can't be telling and, and pointing the finger and telling these architects who run these firms that they can't be doing what they're doing. It's a bullshit. It's bullshit. You know who I bet pays their interns? NASA. <laughs> Everyone should... All the interns run, run to NASA <laughs> and your guys can work on the beam. You can work on all of the future Mars, Martian architecture that we're all going to need. And the um, realization of the Buckminster Fuller future fantasy that we're all going to be living in when the cryogenics field catches up with our space exploration field and we're all managed to transplant to, to Mars. That's exactly my point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not at all meant to make to uh, diminish the significance of the unpaid internship conversation. In fact, I would, if not just for the images that accompany the feature article that, our, that um, Nicholas wrote about this issue, I encourage you to go and read and look at the article. It is a great article and a great reminder of an ongoing issue that is really can never receive too much attention. Um, so we hope that this brings a little bit of a reminder to people in regardless of whether the market might be good at any given time, this stuff is still going on. So Nicholas, thank you so much for coming on and talking about your piece. Thank you guys. And I'd like to extend a thank you to my co-hosts, Donna and Ken. Thank you guys so much for joining us this week. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, you can reach out to us on Twitter through at Arc Sessions or with hashtag Arcanect Sessions. You can also send us an email to connect at arcanect.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. And you can look out for our next one-to-one -one episode, which comes out this following Monday. We will be featuring an interview we did with Ray Cappy, the founder of SciArc. And the interview actually took place in his home in Rustic Canyon. It's an incredible house, and the interview was also very interesting. I was really looking forward to putting that out on the web. So thanks, everyone, for joining us. Have a good week. Good to talk to you all. Bye. Bye.